0: I want to give a quick shout-out to everyone who supports the show on Patreon. You really help keep the lights on at Dirty History. And to everyone else, if you value the show as an educational resource, meaning you learn things you didn't know you wanted to know, and laugh at things you didn't know you could, consider supporting the show on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash dirtyhistory. Patreon.com slash dirtyhistory. It may just be $1 a month for you, which really only adds up to $12 a year, But for me in this show, it means everything. It's almost like, if you saw me on the streets, and you and I both had free time, would you buy me a cup of coffee? I mean, that's what supporting the show on Patreon is. Help me make the show what we want it to be. Patreon.com slash Dirty History. Thank you to all of you in advance, and um, with that, on with the show. Let's slow down for a second. Step back from everything you're doing. If you're on the subway, close your eyes for a moment. If you're preparing dinner, step back for a second. Whatever you're doing, I want you to just close your eyes. If I asked you to sit down and write your own obituary, think about what you would want to be on there. What, in the end, mattered most to you? Was it that you were survived by three children, six grandkids, and a loving spouse? Was it that you left an insurmountable legacy, that you lived a devout life, a full life? Not to say the two are mutually exclusive. What's important to you? How would you want to be remembered? How would you want to be grieved for? I mean, it's an interesting thought experiment. Wrapping your head around the reality that you, like all other living things, will die. It was true when Dr. Johnson said the prospect of death wonderfully concentrates the mind, and it is still true today. There is Nothing you can do or say or think that will ever change the inevitability of your death. In fact, it is firmly out of your control. You can do everything you could possibly do to keep yourself out of the harm's way and then something on a cosmic level could occur that just decimates the entire earth and your best attempts to stay alive for as long as possible have failed or on a smaller level, you could keep yourself healthy and work out and whatever, 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 but you will still one day die. And on top of that, you should realize it's probably more helpful for you to come to terms with your own mortality sooner than later, so that when you're posed with the question of what you want to be remembered by, you have a good answer. I mean... Reincarnation and near-misses aside, you only die once, and you only have one shot to not fade from memory and be altogether forgotten until a distant relative runs in Ancestry.com check and you pop up a small blip on a family tree of unfamiliar faces and you are just as quickly forgotten. And if this all sounds a little bleak, you're not alone. The fear of death is, well, universal, experienced by many humans tying together data from many disciplines. It can be argued that death is in fact the sum of all fears, which makes sense when you consider what we on a national level recognize as brave and heroic. When I say we, I'm talking about the United States where I'm from. It is brave to face death. It is heroic to act upon some moral principle even when failing means death. In his book, The Denial of Death, Ernest Becker grapples with just this idea, writing quote, The first thing we have to do with heroism is to lay bare its underside, show what gives human heroics its specific nature and impetus. Here we introduce directly. One of the great rediscoveries of modern thought. That of all things that move man, one of the principal ones is his terror of death. After Darwin, the problem of death as an evolutionary one came to the fore, and many thinkers immediately saw that it was a major psychological problem for man. They also very quickly saw what real heroism was about. As Shaler wrote, just at the turn of the century, Heroism is first and foremost a reflex of the terror of death. We admire most the courage to face death. We give such valor our highest and most constant adoration. It moves us deeply in our hearts because we have doubts about how brave we ourselves would be. When we see a man bravely facing his own extinction, we rehearse the greatest victory we can imagine. And so, the hero has been the center of human honor and acclaim since probably the beginning of specifically human evolution, but even before that our primate, primate ancestors deferred to others who were powerful and courageous and ignored those who were cowardly. Man has elevated animal courage into a cult. The whole focus for this episode is the ways in which we have ritualized death and framed it as a passage, as a means of hopefully evading this truth we must all face. Death is passing on, passing away, moving forward, reincarnating into something, going somewhere. We've tried and tried to make death an easier pill to swallow. But it just isn't possible. It is the terror. It is the sum of all fear. Death is the one thing we wish we could evade, but never can. Again, referencing Becker, who wrote a truly terrific work on death, quote, man is literally split in two. He has an awareness of his own splendid uniqueness, and that he sticks out of nature with a towering majesty, and yet he goes back into the ground a few feet in order to blindly and dumbly rot and disappear forever. Now, Becker's a little dated with his gender and whatnot, but he makes a valid point. We are far too, as humans, cocky for our own situation flesh bags on a ball of rock rotating around a giant gas ball that if you stand too long in it will give you cancer, but if you're away from it too long, you get depressed, it makes no sense. Well, it makes perfect sense, but we will dumbly and blindly rot and disappear forever. However, before you come to terms with this new existential crisis I've presented to you, Just know that you can have some say in how you live, to an extent. It's been said before, and it's true, everyone dies, but not everyone lives. For instance, Becker found that modern people were drinking and drugging themselves out of awareness, or they were spending their time shopping, which is really the same thing. And as I've found, and I don't think I'm alone here, the best way to live is to accept that you will die. And that there is nothing you can do about it, and that there is nothing nothing at all you can say. And if there is nothing you can do about it, then there's no point in fearing it. Because what's fear going to change? The whole conundrum reminds me of this this flow chart I saw a while back. There was a time when I was racked with anxiety and stress and I couldn't manage my time well. It's still a work in progress, mind you, but I was worried about something all the time. And I don't think I'm the only person on the planet that experienced that. I know for a fact, I know at least 20 people that are racked with anxiety and depression. It's just, you know, the cultural personality. But that all changed, at least in part, when I saw this little chart I'm about to mention. It ran something like this. If there is something stressing you out, so is there something stressing you out? If so, so if it's yes or no, if you answered yes, there's something stressing you out, can you do something about it? If you can, do that thing and stop worrying. If you can't do anything about it, accept it and stop worrying because that won't help much either. I found that accepting death is much like that. So many people have been fueled by by death anxiety, fear over being gone, and the inadequacy of what they may leave behind. We we cannot endure our own littleness unless we translate it into meaningfulness on the largest possible level. It's another becker. And that's all for naught. Death shouldn't be some unbeatable enemy. As Carl jung once wrote, quote, One needs death to be able to harvest the fruit. Without death, life would be meaningless, since the long-lasting rises again and denies its own meaning. To be and to enjoy your being, you need death, and limitation enables you to fulfill your being. What that all means is, even the best movie, even the best film, needs to end. I, I love The Big Lebowski, for example. But if it If it stretches into infinity, it would be less of a pleasure and more of an act of attrition. Hell, I can barely stand most three-and-a-half-hour movies unless it's like really, really good. That's a long commitment. I mean, if the Big Lebowski never ended, even the most devout Dudist priest, yes, there's a religion based on the Big Lebowski, would commit the cardinal sin of pausing the movie and walking away. But all this is to say that you have no choices in death. I mean, if you're lucky, or those surviving you have any respect for your wishes, you have some choice in regards to what happens to you, your body, when you die. But what exactly does that look like? That, of course, depends on you and your individual beliefs or religious affiliations. Perhaps you're cremated or, or I don't know, buried, embalmed, taxidermied and put up on display, whatever it is, there are plenty of ways to die, and there are plenty of ways to dispose of a dead body. And when I say dispose of a dead body, I know most of you are true crime fans, and I'm speaking beyond the macabre list of techniques found in your favorite true crime documentary. The numerous disposal techniques I'm referring to are those widely accepted and culturally sanctioned methods of disposal. The ways, again, in which we ritualize the death process to help us cope with death. Funerals aren't for the dead. They're for the living to come to terms with the fact that they will be joining their dearly departed sooner than they'd like. That's why everyone's crying. I mean, granted, they're probably going to miss the person, at least sometimes, but the idea of culturally accepted that's a slippery framework to play in, because what's culturally accepted, of course, changes from culture to culture, and through time. What one Roman may consider acceptable, a Wallaeta clan member may find downright reprehensible, or vice versa. Even, even coming to a conclusion about what's fair game and off-limits within any one culture or religious group at one point in time, is that's a muddy enough task. For example... Traditional Judaism forbids embalming or cremating a dead body. Traditional Judaism states that a body should be buried as quickly as possible. It seems that the preferable time constraint is within 24 hours. But that said, approaching a rabbi or cherva kadisha about an extenuating circumstance can lead to leniency in the interpretation of those burial customs. Shevra Kadisha, by the way, is an organization that sees to the proper burial or of deceased Jews according to tradition and custom. Their main job, I think I've seen, at least, is protecting the deceased from desecration. If you want to see some examples of what I'm talking about here, just look to the biblical Joseph for some of that muddiness. Genesis fifty twenty six So Joseph died being a hundred and ten years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So that, that obviously comes into conflict with what we just talked about, embalming being against the tradition in Judaism. The same goes for Joseph's father, Israel, Genesis fifty two quote. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father, Israel. So the physicians embalmed him. It's all right there in that that redundant list-like biblical writing style where you say the same thing twice, you know. She was told to sleep, so she slept. He was allowed to eat, so he ate. They were put to death, so they died. Regardless, tradition, as it were, is in itself a concept not so well understood, Long-established customs and practices can change for the simple fact that they're not written down. But generally, in Judaism, if possible, a speedy burial is encouraged. The same is true for most Muslims who also do not participate in embalming the deceased. Similar to St. Cuthbert from the last episode, the body is washed and dressed in clean cloth, except in the case of Muslims, it is a white burial shroud called a kafan, and not some arbitrarily selected robes from Cuthbert's wardrobe. It obviously doesn't come as a shock that different cultures value and devalue different means of caring for the dead. It all comes down to what those cultures have traditionally feared about death. Again, embalming, for example. It's a widely accepted practice. In the United States, Australia, New Zealand, among some other countries, and the process involves a few steps like disinfecting a body, draining blood, fluids and gases along with pumping in various chemical agents like dyes and perfumes into the arteries meant to delay the decomposition of the corpse. It's a common procedure here in the states and like I guess at Australia and New Zealand and whatnot, but it's not always a it's not always a foolproof one. Famously, Pope Pius XII underwent a full-scale embalming only to have his skin turn black, his nose fall off, and his body disintegrate in the coffin. Reportedly, the Swiss guard changed shifts on 15-minute increments as they cannot stand the smell of his holiness's decomposing corpse for an extended period of time. And considering that it's the Pope we're talking about, and it's the Swiss guard's job to guard the Pope, must have been quite a stench to justify such an awkward guard schedule. And I don't know what it is about popes, but they seem to have the darndest time with preservation. Back in 1978, Paul VI reportedly took on a greenish tinge to his skin, and fans were installed in in the viewing area so that the smell of putrefaction could be dispersed to a bearable level. Some fared better than others, as Pope John the XXII was buried in 1963 and was in relatively good shape when he was disinterred in 2001. But it's all relative when talking about corpses. And again, I don't know what's up with all of these disinterments through history. Some about if you're a famous character in history, they just won't let you rest. They'll beat your name to death, and they'll pull out your dead body from time to time to see how you're dealing with it. As they say, there's no rest for the wicked, but apparently, history books have shown me that there's no rest for anyone else as well. And all this talk about Judaism, Carl Jung, papal decomposition, and Becker has got me thinking a lot about timing. After listening to the last episode, I imagine you are too. Chemical timing, rot, decay, bone bleaching. There was much to think about and much to digest, and You had some time to do it. Now I want to talk about cultural considerations of death. And going forward, I may broadly mention Western culture and their processes of dealing with the dead. But I should be careful not to draw on generalizations here as many of the burial practices in Western cultures, these are air quotes you can't see every time I say Western culture, they have varying methods based on ethnic groups, songs, burial services, timelines, most of which we've already talked about. It's hard to pinpoint what the tradition is when the tradition isn't written down or the tradition changes depending on who's reading it. So I guess when I say Western, I mean those practices I'm accustomed to. That's my bias, even though I try not to have one. When I say Western, I'm acknowledging my own bias, despite my best attempt to suppress it. It comes through. Now, let's assume the only thing keeping you from falling into an abyss of nihilism and existential angst is your ability to have some agency in how you live and some say in what will occur to your remains after you die. What happens when that is all stripped away? What happens when you know you're going to die, you've accepted that, but you are denied the means of choosing how you live? What happens to your remains? You have no choice in that either. Unfortunately, this concept isn't a theoretical one. This terrible set of circumstances occurs frequently. Some of the most well-known examples of this would be the Holocaust, the Rwandan genocide, the Cambodian genocide, and the two numerous atrocities throughout history. And to understand why not only... The atrocity itself was so cruel and inhumane. But the treating of the dead bodies as well as being inhumane, cruel, evil, despicable. To understand all that, to understand why these atrocities, these genocides have an extra layer of just, I don't know, despicableness, evilness, however you want to describe it. To really understand that, we should trace... The importance of burial rites. To do this, I want to take a journey. A survey of various cultures' understanding of death and burial. Where better to start than one culture that has piqued the interest of hundreds of thousands of people through time? I mean, hell, we could probably say millions of people. Let's start at ancient history. Let's start at ancient Egypt. I'm Thomas Thompson, and this is Dirty History. Do you die when your body is lifeless? What is the value of this? decomposing, rigor mortis-affected thing? How might you be able to fully have this experience of death, but also continue through the trials of the afterlife? Through each of those questions, the Egyptians understood a more, a more complex journey. But it was their duty to understand the purpose of life, vicariously through the trials of the afterlife. So as I said, dying allowed the living a certain knowledge. Egyptians during the New Kingdom truly did not believe that you left your lifeless body. But yet, you took your lifeless body with you through the afterlife and the trials therein. And it was there that you may fully understand the life you lived. See, it's that trope again of passing on to somewhere. It wasn't death. It was simply the next stage. So first, we must understand the mythology behind Egyptian culture. As I said, I'm a slave to context, and I think studying folklore and mythology is just as crucial to studying the important events in history and understanding a culture's, culture's psyche. So here's the context. Egyptian rolling first began in the prehistoric and pre-dynastic times, though we will primarily focus on the new kingdom arguably dating from the 16th to the 11th century BCE, or rather the 18th, 19th, and 20th dynasties of Egypt. This is our first foray into ancient history, by the way, so this should be fun, but this time period that we are primarily focusing on it will include some of those more well known names. Nefereti, Tutankhamun, Ramses the II, Second, Ramses the Third, Ramses the Fourth, the Fifth, the Sixth, the Seventh, the Eighth, the Ninth, the Tenth, and the Eleventh. It was during this time that the names weren't that original. I'm kidding. It was during this time that the Book of the Dead, which evolved from the coffin text and the pyramid text, was extremely popular. Well, as popular as a book in a society with 1-5% to literacy rates could be. Again, those numbers are estimates, of course, as data is scarce on ancient Egyptian literacy. So when I say the book was popular, I don't mean it was on the Egyptian bestsellers list that week, but that the act of preparing the book was popular. Let me explain. Towards the end of a pharaoh's life, They would call for a scribe to prepare a book, which 19th century persons colloquialized as the Book of the Dead. This book was never the same for each individual, but would contain similar pieces throughout. Each piece was a spell that they were able to take with them into the afterlife to guide them through the Hall of Truth, Lily Lake, and to eventually end up at the Field of Reeds to live out the rest of their life or afterlife peacefully. One particular component that was included in almost every Book of the Dead was the weighing of the heart. Anubis in their Book of the Dead would lead the Pharaoh to the Hall of Truth, where they were presented in front of Osiris, Thoth, and Anubis himself, as well as 42 judges, who all evaluated the Pharaoh's heart based on their life and actions. It was with these questions that their heart, or scare part, was weighed against the feather of Maat. Maat was not only a goddess, but also the belief system that one might be just, truthful, and morally centered. When Pharaohs passed on, the heart, which was thought to be the epicenter of intelligence, emotional responses, and memory, was kept within the body for that importance. So when you're passing on the heart is kept in your body, all the other organs, they meant nothing for intelligence. Like, for example, the brain was removed because that does not relate to intelligence at all. Everyone knows that. Throughout each of these negative confessions, the pharaoh would utilize their book of the dead in order to respond correctly to each judge and answer each of these questions and hopefully pass through the Hall of Truth. And from what I can tell, the Hall of Truth is like the weighing your sins at the pearly gates or something along those lines. So that essentially the Pharaoh wanted to answer these questions correctly so that they would pass through Lily Lake to spend the rest of their lives in the field of Reeds. The Field of Reeds being like a heaven esque place. Following the passing of the Pharaoh, there were similar complex preparations happening to ensure that the pharaoh would be able to navigate with the proper protections and items needed for their passage into the afterlife. It was through this process that body preparations began and the organs removed. Mummification is the process, as many of you already know, of preserving the body in human form to ensure that the body is intact for the afterlife. You can't use a body in the afterlife if you're missing a leg and your nose fell off and you're turning black and disintegrating, Allah, Pope Pius XII. So first, the body was brought to the embalmers, where the body was washed with good-smelling palm wine and water from the Nile. Understanding that the organs, such as the liver, lungs, and intestines, would decay fairly quickly, they began removing these organs— with a slice on the left side of the body and placing them in natron, which is harvested as a salt mixture from dry lake beds around ancient Egypt. The heart was kept within the body as it was thought to be the center for intelligence. However, the brain was smashed and pulled out through the nose. The process continued by using more natron, which is a chemical consisting of sodium bicarbonate baking soda, sodium carbonate washing soda, and sodium chloride table salt. So essentially it was like placed in a salt mixture. This natron that was found in lake beds would be then placed inside the body and on exterior parts of the body to dry out the corpse and prevent decay. So it's basically covered and filled with this natron salt. And after 40 days of drying in the salt, the body is uncovered and washed again with water from the Nile. Then oils were rubbed into the dry skin until the skin became elastic in nature, Within this shriveled-up body, the organs were wrapped in linen and placed back within the body along with sawdust, linen, and leaves in order to puff up the chest and cavities in order to represent a lifelike body. Previously, these organs were placed in, in jars, or essentially preserved. After the body was good and elastic from a deep tissue massage, the neck and head were wrapped in linen as well as the fingers and toes individually and during the wrapping of the entire body, amulets were placed within the layers, and the priest would read off spells to protect the body through the journey in the afterlife. The arms were wrapped individually until the end when they were tied together, clutching a scroll with spells from the Book of the Dead. Through each layer of linen, a coat of resin was also placed on the mummified body itself. Following the linen wrappings, Some were painted with mythological gods in order to guide and protect the body. The final wrapping was with cloth and a board which was placed on top of the mummy before lowering it into the tomb. And within this tomb many times were food, wine, animals, and servants in order for the pharaoh to have their support in the afterlife. Yes, servants. And a fortunate part of a Pharaoh's death was that if you were the Pharaoh's servant, you were going to. Regardless if you were 20, 10, or 50, I don't know. And you wouldn't be alone if this sounds all too, I don't know, confined, perhaps is the word, too stuffy. Maybe the idea of putting your remains in a small tomb isn't exactly what you had in mind for the afterlife, or for your death, for that matter. And that's fine. You have choices. There are plenty of cultures since time immemorial that agree with you. Let's take a classic Scandinavian practice as an example. A ship burial, at least in the Viking sense of the practice, was something reserved as a high honor. The practice itself is much less convoluted, but yet similar to the Egyptian practice of mummification. A ship, or boat, whatever you want to call it, is used as the container for the dead. Instead of a tomb or a cemetery plot, some people were lucky enough to be put to rest on a ship, which was packed with possessions or, quote, grave goods, which were meant to accompany you into the afterlife, which, this is the callback to Egyptian burial rites. Now, these boats... Can vary in size, with one of the largest being around 65 feet and some of the smallest being no larger than a small canoe. Ship burials of this size are simply referred to as boat graves, as they are lacking the ornamentation and extravagance inherent to the typical ship burial. But this, this practice was seen in, my estimation, a very honorable way to be buried. And it certainly is romantic, casting off someone close to you as they sail out into the sunset, never to be seen again. And, again, this is the idea of, they're not dead, they're going on a journey, from which they'll never return, but they're going away, somewhere else. At least, that is what you think when viewing this through a romantic lens. While, well, in fact, someone down the line may very well come in contact with that ship burial. And there have been cases in which ships have been recovered hundreds of years after the ship burial took place, crashed somewhere or sunk somewhere. And this is where excavation of these ship burials comes into play and everything gets a little complicated. As Ezgir Svistad describes, there's a few famous reburials. Quote, the Nidian reburial is one of the latest, largest, and most controversial reburials in. Fenno-Scandinavia, and it constitute what appears to be the president in Norway. But we should not forget other Norwegian reburial events or the context within which they took place. The human remains from the Osberg and Gugstad ship burials are good examples. After the 1904-1905 excavation of the Osberg remains... They were held in the Anatomical Institute in Oslo, but in 1946, the Vestfold Historical Society wrote a letter to the Senate of the University of Oslo requesting they be reburied. Despite opposition from members of the scientific community, the Vestfold Historic Society reinterred the remains in an aluminum coffin, reconstructing the burial mound and consecrated it in a public event which was attended by Crown Prince Olav. Similarly, Gulkstad's remains were reburied inside a lead coffin placed within the granite sarcophagus in the reconstructed mound was concentrated by King Hakon in July 1928. I may have sounded a little off my game there. I butcher Scandinavian names from time to time, but the whole point is things are getting complicated because you're buried a certain way. You're buried in a ship. You're buried... In a sarcophagus, you're buried in a tomb, you're put in an urn which is frozen in a block of ice and then sunk to the bottom of the Arctic Ocean. I don't know. The point is. Who owns the dead? How can you guarantee that the way you choose to be buried can remain to some degree permanent? How can you, if you so choose, avoid becoming an archaeological piece of study? Maybe that's attractive for you, maybe it's attractive to lots of people, but What if you wanted to be left in peace? I've become far more pessimistic about the statement there's no rest for the wicked because history has shown me that there's no rest for anyone. What measures can someone take to assure that they still have some degree of autonomy after death? Or do we forfeit all semblance of autonomy and free will at the time of death? This brings me back... our central theme of time. What is the time at which someone is no longer human? Are we always human, even after death? Even when we are just bone meal? Or is humanity something that you forfeit when one's consciousness slips out of your body? The question then arises, do we ever cease to be conscious? Do we ever cease to be a sentient human? These are all heavy questions, and I may not have all the answers to you, but I do have a cop-out. I do have a way out of having to answer this question, which is my favorite way to answer a question. What if there was a way in which you could totally avoid the conundrum of being dug up and trudged out for the sake of science and archaeology? You could be cremated, for example, and have your ashes spread to the wind. Or we could also talk sky burial. This is the third and final case study. A sky burial is the practice of having your lifeless corpse cut into pieces and fed to vultures. Well, there are various sky burial grounds scattered throughout Tibet, we will focus on the tradition at but a few. These few are a good representation of what the rest have to offer aside from some small changes in detail and particular elements, but the broad strokes are the same. Our first example is a sky burial ground founded by the 8th Kirti Rinpoche. The grounds themselves have been used for at least 200 years, but the tradition of sky burial goes back many hundreds of years. As one monk who lives at the monastery in which the grounds are linked muses of the practice quote we visualize and receive that the vultures are the emanation of the wisdom deities and that the human body is an offering to them the idea behind offering your corpse for consumption is that it brings with it a kind of merit it is a way to posthumously tip the karmic scales in your favor. Essentially, by offering your body up for consumption, you are providing a final act of kindness to those creatures of the earth, vultures, who are the abstract but perceptible representation of the wisdom deities. You see, a sky burial is a good indicator of what someone can expect in the next life. One sky burial practitioner noted that some bodies attract many birds, while some, the birds refuse. According to Buddhist dogma, all of this depends on one's own karma for many lifetimes, and maybe a touch of geography. You see, mountainous cliffs, huge red mountains, redstone mountains, graystone mountains, beautiful cliff sides overlook the sky burial grounds, which are tucked away in this picturesque highland spanning miles and miles with sharp rocky spires and bluffs and copper-covered cliffs and dotting an expansive landscape. It's all very beautiful, all very Lord of the Rings-esque. But you see, vultures, they nest in the cliffs overlooking the burial grounds, the sky burial grounds, and 100 to 180 birds can show up to consume the dead. It's like throwing bread to pigeons, but you're just throwing dead bodies to vultures. So it's not really the same thing at all. It's, it's a pretty bad example. That said, perhaps you're not familiar with vultures. But these aren't, these aren't pigeons. These aren't your little neighborhood birds. These are intimidating in the swarming numbers seen at many sky burials. Huge birds with long necks and wide wingspans. But they're not all, you know, hulking monsters. Sometimes the birds can't bite through the skin as it is too thick. But when one finally bites through, the rest of the vultures swarm in. As a matter of fact, I think one of the best ways to get an idea of these sky burials is to see them. So a documentary I watched covering a particular sky burial at its climax, you couldn't even see the body. And it wasn't as a means of censorship or whatever. All you could see in the frame was this pulsating brown feathered mass of dozens of vultures swarming the dead body and feeding with the odd piece of viscera making its way to daylight as it hops out of the pile. And this is by design. It was important that the birds consume all of the body. At the Ring King Monastery, juniper incense is burned to summon the vultures. Ragapas unwrap and cut away the flesh from the body, and the bones are crushed and mixed with roasted barley flour, so the entire body, even the bones, may be consumed by the vultures. This all occurs after the consciousness is drawn out of the body. Upon death, the body is wrapped in cloth, knees to chin, as at birth. They're put in the fetal position. And these cloth wrapped, fetal positioned bodies are carried to the burial site by family members. The monks at the monastery, at the burial site, guide the consciousness of the deceased from death to rebirth. And at dawn, The body is unwrapped, and the monks cut the flesh from the body and crush the bones. In a final gesture of generosity and compassion, the body is offered to the vultures who carry them into the open sky, where the sacred world lives. And if this sounds interesting to you, in fact, I kind of envy the vultures and the and the bodies—they're flocking above all of the all of the turmoil on the ground—and they're into the sky, you know, the blue sky, and it's peaceful with these clouds and these big rolling mountains and hills, and it's—it's it's a beautiful thing to see. But it's—it's not—it's not for us in terms that it's not—it's not a tourist destination. But yet, that's what it's becoming. Tourism is a new situation that many of the monks now deal with. The keepers of the ground state, the local authorities are taking advantage of the demand. And demand is that it's that desire to see an event that is not commonly witnessed. I mean, there are so many videos on YouTube and Reddit and Twitter on how macabre and dark and very much my aesthetic that this burial practice is. People from far and wide, they, they fetishize the practice. Tourism, for the aesthetics and the likes that you'll get on social media, is an insult to the tradition. But perhaps that's what it's all about. No one gives a shit about tradition anymore. And I don't mean tradition in terms of Traditional moral values, but I mean tradition in terms of a sacred practice. Something that should be free of the perversion of social media. Something that should just be experienced. Just be there for it. Be there because it is beautiful. Don't be there because it's it's dark and edgy and moody, and like that dark tourism show you see on Netflix. Something that's, hey, this is cool because it's weird, you know? I mean, these, these picturesque grounds that I was talking about, they're invaded by Range Rovers and off-road vehicles to witness an emotional and sacred practice. I can't help but envy the birds, you know, up there in the fresh air, taking the remains of those whose consciousness travels between lives in a cycle of death and rebirth. And the, the grounds represent so much more than a site of ma- a macabre way to dispose of your remains. I mean, these sites are contested. They have value. Since March 2011, 120 Tibetans have set themselves on fire in protest of Chinese political rule in Tibet. Three of those self-immolations took place at the Taksteng Lamo Kirti Monastery. That's a sky burial ground where all three monks died of their injuries. The monks willfully rejected themselves, their sacred burial rites, in exchange to make a statement about the injustice they saw in the world. They had a choice to make the political statement they did. Some people, however, did not have a choice. Which leads me to mass burial. Some examples of mass burial were considered normal, acceptable, not a violation of cultural norms, as cremation prior to the advent of a modern crematory was not widely practiced in urban areas. The, the Holy Innocent Cemetery in Paris is an example of this. There were so many people dying, and there wasn't cremation. They were all buried in mass graves. And due to the overuse of this area, The remains had to be moved to the catacombs, which now contains the remains of some 6 million people. And cremation aside, ossuaries like the catacombs are extremely popular when space is scarce for corpses. And ossuaries being confined spaces like chests and boxes, wells or buildings where skeletal remains are laid. It seems that the first resting place isn't an ossuary, but it certainly is the last. The San Bernardino a Asa is a church in Milan with the whole side of the interior. It's adorned with bones and skulls of the dead. And ossuaries, they aren't an affront to your religious tradition. They are simply, simply something that's expedient. But it seems like your final wishes those that you make before death, those of how you want to be buried, aren't often the last. It seems that death isn't just a final resting place. So when we say you travel to death, you pass on, you're not exactly wrong. A body is disinterred and moved around many, many times. Perhaps it is preserved and Put up in an anatomical institute and used for science. Perhaps it is shown at an archaeological summit or conference. Is it fetishized? Is it is it perverted by social media by macabre tourism? There is a burial ground, for example, in uh in Bali, Indonesia, where the dead are not buried below ground, but rather in these cages, where they are left in the open air. They simply decompose. Kind of like those uh, burial grounds, not grounds, but um, research institute at the University of Tennessee where bodies are seen how to decompose. It's very similar to that. Was it the original demand that those things be be inundated with tourists taking pictures and showing how cool this is? Perhaps the show is guilty of that. I mean, my goal is to just educate and explain those things that are not widely talked about. But perhaps I'm encouraging some of what I think I despise. It's all relative, and it's all a slippery slope. I hope I'm doing my part into preventing something like this from occurring again and again. But who knows? There's only one thing that's certain. We all die. And once you accept that, well, it's not so bad. I'm Thomas Thompson, and this has been Dirty History. I'll talk to you soon. And if you like what you heard here, you can find more things dirty and everything history on our website, dirtyhistorypod.com. If you like the show and you value it as an educational resource, you can support what we do on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash dirtyhistory. It might just be a dollar for you, but everything helps. So thank you to all of our patrons, and thank you to all of our future patrons. However, if money just really isn't an option and you don't want to support the show monetarily, you can do us a huge favor. And go subscribe to the show on whatever platform you're using and leave a review. That's crucial. We found that many, many, many of our listeners, I think it's somewhere in them, it's high percentages, 60, 70% of the people that listen to the show aren't subscribed. So if you could please subscribe to the show, leave a review. If you don't want to, just subscribe, leave a rating. That would really help with the algorithm and really help us get dirty history to more people. Because in this era of data and algorithms and suggested listening, very little is paid attention in the way of taste. All of you have good taste. Most of you. I don't want to say all. Most of you have good taste. Nothing's better than listening to something that your friends suggest. So please do that. Spread the show around to your friends and family, co-workers, colleagues, whoever that may enjoy learning that which they shouldn't. You can also stay up to date with the show by following our social medias. Instagram at Dirty History Pod, Twitter at Pod Dirty, and on Facebook. We also have a Tumblr. I don't know what the hell Tumblr does, but we have one and we're active on it. I post on Tumblr every single time. I post on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. And this would be a perfect time to stay up to date on those as well as some of the other exciting announcements coming up in the near future. We have a lot going on behind the scenes that I know you will be excited about if you're a fan of the show or of podcasts in general. So there's some stuff coming out soon. I think you're really, really going to dig. So you could follow us on all the social medias, go to our website, subscribe, support us on Patreon, however you want to support the show. Tell someone about it, whatever you want to do. Just do something. It's really going to help the show. It'd be awesome. Um, The show is brought to you by our art director, Woodrow Cower our show's script editor and staff writer Andrew Henley um, Thomas Thompson we have a new um, writer joining the show soon so we should be able to pump out better content and with that said a quick little you know aside on the future of the show um, this format of doing a weekly episode or a bi-weekly episode just isn't sustainable in giving you the context and the information that you deserve so We're going to do 15 episodes a year plus interviews. So you can expect somewhere in the 20 to 40 range, depending on how many interviews we score in a year, but 15 narrative content episodes. You will get those. That's a guarantee. That's my guarantee to you. One a month, except in the summers, you'll get two. So 15 episodes a month plus interviews. Again, our art director is Woodrow Cower our script editor and staff writer, Andrew Henley. We have a new person joining soon that's exciting. And I'm Thomas Thompson. Thank you for wanting to know that which you shouldn't. I'll talk to you soon.